Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, so-called modern-day prophets are coming under scrutiny for their false prophecies concerning the recent presidential election. The mobile hospital of Samaritan's Purse is saving lives all over the country. And I prescribe a way back for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which has been rocked by recent troubles. We begin today with the World Watch List from Open Doors. Yeah, every year the Christian ministry Open Doors publishes a list of the countries in the world in which Christians face persecution. This year, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed a number of existing problems, political divisions, inequalities, and conspiracy theories that have contributed to religious persecution. In India, for example, the Christian watchdog organization said that 80% of Christians who received pandemic aid from its partner organizations reported that they had been turned away from other food distribution points sponsored by the government because of their faith. Others reported that they'd been passed over for employment. Some had walked miles and actually hidden their religious affiliation just to get food. Uh, we've definitely seen both extreme and governments taking advantage of or using this opportunity to justify an increase in persecution. Those were the words of David Curry, the president and CEO of Open Doors USA. And India, by the way, is number 10 in Open Doors ranking of the 50 countries where Christians face the most persecution for their faith in 2021. North Korea was number one on the list for the 20th straight year. Yeah, and other countries in the worst 10, you might say, where Christians face the most persecution and discrimination were Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, and Nigeria. Well, is there any good news this year? Well, the only good news is that Sudan dropped to number 13 outside of the top 10 because it had scrapped its blasphemy law. But that's about it. Most of the other countries in the top 10 had been there since 2015, which opened at that time proclaimed the worst year in modern history for Christian persecution. But David Curry said that I'm afraid that I could repeat that statement this year of the 2021 report. In fact, of the 50 countries on the World Watch list, about 309 million Christians uh, live in those countries and experience either very high or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination. Uh, that's one in eight Christians worldwide. Let's move a little closer to home. Liberty University is back in the news. Yeah, Liberty University sued Virginia Governor Ralph Northam on Friday, uh, accusing his administration of wrongfully denying financial aid to some of Liberty School's online students. At issue here is a budget change that Governor Ralph Northam and the Democrat-controlled General Assembly implemented last year that made incoming students enrolled exclusively in online programs ineligible for 
for a state program for Virginia residents called the Tuition Assistance Grant Program. I should say that Liberty has an enormous and lucrative online presence, and they've been a leading recipient of this Tuition Assistance Grant Program for many, many years. And so that change that Governor Northam made last year has been something of a sore spot for the university and its former president, Jerry Falwell Jr., who repeatedly lashed out at Northam. The lawsuit alleges that the eligibility changes were designed specifically to harm liberty, and they threatened to wreak severe economic and reputational harm to the school. Uh, Liberty is asking the court to stop this exclusion of online students from the grant program, saying that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because no rational basis exists to distinguish between online and place-based education, at least according to the lawsuit. Well, another interesting story that surfaced this week, Warren, was it's the family feud that's taking place in some charismatic and Pentecostal circles regarding the so-called prophetic preachers. What's going on there? Well, about 40 charismatic preachers um, said over the last couple of years that they had received a word from God, a prophecy, uh, that Donald Trump was going to be reelected president. Now, with the election of Joe Biden and his inauguration just days away, other charismatic leaders are saying that these false prophets should repent. And some of them have. Well, in fact, that's right. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson, a Charlotte-based evangelist who prophesied that Trump would win a second term, has indeed gone public with an apology on Facebook and elsewhere. But when he made that apology on Facebook, he also said a couple of days later that his life had been threatened uh, because of that apology. I'm going to read you a part of Johnson's statement here. Over the past 72 hours, that's since he... um, originally published his apology, I have received multiple death threats and thousands upon thousands of emails from Christians saying the nastiest and most vulgar things I have ever heard towards my family and ministry. I have been labeled a coward, a sellout, a traitor to the Holy Spirit, cussed out at least 500 times, he said. We've lost ministry partners every hour and we're counting. And by ministry partners, I assume he's meaning financial partners. Well, exactly right. And I think that's a part of the issue here. Uh, There's a lot of competition and a lot of rivalry between these uh, ministries. A lot of these so-called prophets are part of the movement called the New Apostolic Reformation that believes that biblical-style apostles and prophets exist today and are meant to guide the church. Johnson has been a key figure in, in this movement. In fact, while, of course, a lot of mainstream evangelicals are Trump supporters, it's um, a fact that many of Trump's most high-profile advocates, including Paula White, President Trump's closest religious ally, in fact, come out of this very same Pentecostal charismatic movement. Well, let's look at one other story before we go to break, and it's another intramural squabble regarding the critical race theory. Yeah, that's right. Regular listeners to the podcast know that we've been following this controversy regarding race and critical race theory for several months. We went into some detail explaining it last week. Now, I should add the vast majority of Southern Baptist leaders oppose critical race theory. In fact, I've interviewed many of them personally. I always ask them the question about critical race theory. They always tell me that they're opposed to it. Uh, It's a theory, by the way, that embraces anti-Christian ideologies. Uh, 
not a single Southern Baptist leader that I know of, in fact, has spoken in favor of critical race theory. However, some of the statements opposing critical race theory have been crafted by groups that were made up only of white leaders. And that has led to accusations of paternalism and exclusivity within the Southern Baptist Convention. But some of the leaders are acknowledging that. Yeah, they are. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, officials that signed a statement back a couple of months ago, a statement that was prepared by the presidents of the seminaries, admitted that it would have been better if they had contacted black leaders in their denomination before issuing that statement, which decried critical race theory. And that statement, by the way, led to the departure of several pretty prominent black pastors. In response to uh, weeks of reaction to that statement and a request for a meeting uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention's National African American Fellowship, the denomination's seminary presidents, the one that's, that I just mentioned that crafted that statement originally, and those uh, National African American Fellowship leaders did in fact meet last Wednesday on January the 6th. Following Wednesday's meeting, they issued a joint statement, uh, and it said that leaders of the SBC's National African American Fellowship and the Council of Seminary Presidents said that they had an honest and open conversation during the meeting, which was a virtual meeting. They discussed various perspectives on all these issues and vowed to continue talking. Uh, the statement went on to say this, all of us acknowledge that conversations of this nature should have happened ahead of time. The Council of Seminary Presidents regrets the pain and confusion that resulted from a lack of prior dialogue. Together, all of us are committed to condemn and fight racism in every form, personal and structural, uh, but to do so in a way that's consistent with the 1995 SBC Resolution on Racial Reconciliation and the Baptist Faith and Message. Well, Warren, we need to take a break, but later in the program, the latest installment in our Generous Living series, a story of a Kentucky couple who are transforming their town. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after a short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, months ago, we talked about the mobile hospital that Samaritan's Purse set up in New York's Central Park, where when there was a surge of COVID cases there. And that hospital has since been 
getting a real workout. Well, it certainly has. Uh, We reported last week that the hospital was recently moved to Lenore, North Carolina, near the home of Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is based in Boone, and Lenore is about halfway between Boone and Charlotte. And the reason was simple. The number of COVID cases just keeps surging. And while the vast majority of people who get COVID will recover, and over the months, doctors have come up with effective therapies for COVID sufferers, the massive number of cases has sent some hospitals up to and even beyond their capacity. And sometimes just having 20 or 30 extra beds uh, where the non-life-threatened cases can recover will free up ICU equipment space for those who might otherwise die. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's why these mobile units have been such a huge help wherever they've gone, especially right now here in North Carolina. But they've also been deployed in Alaska, in Italy, in Bermuda, and Samaritan's Purse has started erecting a 50-bed facility in California as well. Up next, Warren, is a story of a former top bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church who has been suspended and is awaiting trial. What can you tell us about that story. Well, Staccato Powell is the name of this bishop in the AME Zion Church. He faces accusations of mishandling millions of dollars in transactions related to congregations. That, according to the denomination's bishops who made the announcement just this past week. The Board of Bishops announced that immediate suspension of Staccato Powell was appropriate, so he's no longer an active bishop in the AME Zion Church pending the outcome of a church trial. It should be clear it's a church trial, not a criminal trial, to be convened at the 51st session of the General Conference of the AME Zion Church, which is scheduled at least now to be uh, in July of this year. Uh, The statement by the bishops read, the gravity of this action weighs heavily upon your board of bishops, and we grieve that the severe infractions and maladministration of Bishop Powell have left us with no alternative to this action. The Board of Bishops said that the alleged mismanagement related to the church mortgage funds and involved more than $8 million. They also said that the transactions have the potential to place an enormous debt upon their denomination. Yeah, Bishop Powell was actually the president of the Board of Bishops in early 2020, and he's fighting this disciplinary action. He told Religion News Service in a statement that he is, quote, confident that this matter will be resolved in a favorable manner, and uh, said that the bishops had taken most unfortunate steps. His statement went on to say, how the narrative continues to be presented is antithetical to both due process and, more importantly, the holy writ in regards to how matters of this nature ought to be dealt with among those who are followers of Christ. Powell called the statements of the bishops libelous, slanderous, and ambiguous, and based on inaccurate and incomplete information. Well, Warren, let's talk about another church leader, and that's Ravi Zacharias. You wrote a piece this week that has gotten a lot of attention. Can you talk about what you wrote and why you wrote it? Uh, Yeah, I sure can. Uh, I wrote an article called The Way Back for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Now, I wrote the piece because here at Ministry Watch, our goal is not merely to expose wrongdoing, but ultimately to point the way towards repentance and reconciliation. And you started by acknowledging that RZIM has a big mess on its hands. 
Yeah, I did. I think anytime you want to point someone or an organization towards restoration, you have to acknowledge reality. In 2017, Ministry Watch was one of the very first organizations to raise questions about Ravi Zacharias and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. We raised concerns about sexual misconduct by Ravi Zacharias himself. We questioned his educational credentials. We also expressed concern that RZIM does not release its Form 990s to the public, thereby creating an environment of secrecy. We've also questioned the senior leadership roles of Zacharias' family members in the ministry itself. Now, these concerns then were either ignored or dismissed, even though they have all subsequently proven to be true. RZIM needs to acknowledge that past wrongdoing if it expects to recover its credibility. So full and complete transparency is the first step that I outlined in my article. And that will mean making the report that's currently being done by the law firm of Miller & Martin available to the public when that final report is complete. But you say that the full and complete transparency has to include more than releasing this report. That's right. The releasing the report is the first step, but there must be much more. RZIM needs to release its Form 990s to the public, and they need to release them going all the way back to 2015. The 2014 Form 990, which is the last one made available to the public, showed that Ravi Zacharias made more than $350,000. His daughter, Sarah Davis, made more than $200,000. His wife, Margaret, also had a big salary, more than $150,000, and another daughter, Naomi made more than $130,000. To have so many family members on the payroll making this much money is not a best practice for a Christian ministry. In fact, far from it. It's likely that these practices contributed to the culture of secrecy at RZAM. They just didn't want people to know that. So a full financial disclosure should be forthcoming as well as a full disclosure of any sexual improprieties that may be made public by the Miller and Martin report. What else? Well, RZIM needs to release the non-disclosure agreement that Ravi Zacharias had imposed upon Lori Ann Thompson. Uh, Lori Ann Thompson was one of the alleged victims of Ravi Zacharias. In 2017, Zacharias sued Lori Ann Thompson to silence her. That case was settled, but a part of that settlement was the imposition of a non-disclosure agreement. Lori Ann Thompson has already gone public saying that she wanted to make that non-disclosure agreement agreement available for the world to see. RZIM and the heirs of Ravi Zacharias should agree to that and make public that document and all other documents related to that lawsuit. And you also say that the board of directors at RZIM should be replaced. That's right. We, now, I should also add, we don't really know who is on the board at RZIM, in part because the ministry doesn't release its Form 990s. That's where you would find a list of board members. However, we do know that in 2014, RZIM's board had more than 20 members, and that number is far too large for effective oversight. Ministry Watch, in fact, recommends seven to nine members as kind of an optimum number for a board. But regardless of the size, the events that we already know about are all the evidence necessary to prove this statement, that RZIM's board was responsible for a massive failure of governance and oversight. The current board needs to go, and the new board needs to be much smaller so that dissenting voices have more weight, and they need to be more active in providing oversight. And finally, you say that there should be some sort of reparation for these victims. 
Yeah, I mentioned this last, but in fact, this consideration should be of the very highest importance and part of the thinking that goes into all the other steps that I've proposed. Uh, what this justice that I am uh, asking for looks like is really not for me to decide here. Uh, some of the victims will want to be heard and acknowledged. Some, maybe for privacy's sake or for their own personal healing, might not want to go public. Uh, it will be impossible to undo what's happened, but but we should not deceive ourselves. RZIM cannot be fully restored, should not be fully restored until its victims are, at least to the extent that that's possible. Well, do you think all of this will happen? And if so, would it save the ministry? Well, it's not at all clear if doing even these tough things that I've described would, in fact, rehabilitate uh, the ministry of uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. The very name itself is now tainted, uh, perhaps irreparably so. Rebranding the ministry is probably going to be necessary, but you don't want to do it in a way that's kind of a, a mere whitewashing. You don't want to change the name but not change anything else. That would just be a cynical cover-up uh, to that uh, branding challenge. Uh, nor is it at all clear that the current ministry leadership is willing to make the change. They were, after all, a part of the culture that created the current conditions. But I will say that there are some staff members, including some fairly senior staff members at RZIM, at significant risk to their own careers that are now openly expressing a lack of confidence in the leadership of the ministry. One of the RZIM staff members who's gone public is a man named Max Baker Hitch. In a letter to RZIM leadership that he released to the public, he said, the God we worship is able to bring healing, restoration, and even flourishing out of this extraordinarily painful experience. He goes on to say that the reality is that Ravi's reputation is in tatters, but his legacy, this team, need not be. If we choose to act justly and do the right things, we could become known as the gold standard for how to recover from a tragic situation in a way that beautifully demonstrates the faith we commend. And I guess to that, I would only add a hearty amen. We have to take another break here, but when we return, the latest in our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. And Warren, up next is the latest in our Generous Living series. It's a story of a Kentucky couple that has more or less transformed their town. Yeah, Jess Carell and his younger brother, Vince, were 
big dreamers uh, back in the 80s, but they were also big doers. They were seventh-generation Kentuckians, and when they were teenagers, they would sit around discussing how they could become the wealthiest men in the state of Kentucky. They eventually bought a couple of small banks and merged them together. Yeah, that was way back in 1982. They were still in their mid-20s, and that was the beginning, though, of their empire, an empire that has uh, has its cornerstone, First Southern Bank Corp. Jess was well on his way to become one of Kentucky's wealthiest men, but not without its costs. Yeah, he, Jess, by his own admission, says that his first marriage blew up and ended in divorce, and his brother Vince died in 1996 from a brain tumor. He said both events were turning points. You might say wake-up calls in his life. Um, That's also around the time that he met his second wife, Angela, who is also a seventh-generation Kentuckian. They met on a blind date, and as their relationship flourished, Jess was determined not to make the same mistakes the second time around, and that included making financial decisions as a team. And some of these decisions have been profound. Well, they have. For example, they tithe not only personally, but also from the profits of their businesses. And they started investing a lot of their philanthropic dollars locally in their own hometown of Stanford, Kentucky, and in Christian ministries and institutions nearby, including, for example, Asbury College and Seminary, which is in nearby Wilmore, Kentucky. And the results have been a transformed Stanford. Yeah, it has. Uh, They started a number of businesses in Stanford, Kentucky's downtown area, including a farm-to-table restaurant that's been getting rave critical reviews, uh, vacation rental homes right in the downtown area, as well as a natural soap shop, believe it or not. Uh, Their goals for all of their businesses are excellence, stewardship, and hospitality. That's become sort of their mantra. And in fact, uh, Angela Carell said that she sees these businesses as a way to love people. And by the way, other towns and cities are starting to take notice. They now work with other entrepreneurs, Christian leaders, and even secular civic leaders to help them discover how the unique assets of their town could help create transformations there as well. And Warren, that is a remarkable story. And I have to ask you about the title, though. You call it Money is Like Manure. And as a native farm girl, that sparked quite an imagery that's not necessarily as beautiful as the story. So why that title? (laughs) Well, you're right. It's uh, not a very inviting image, maybe for some. But you remember Vince Carell? That was Jess's brother, the one who died of a brain tumor. Well, Vince used to say that money is like manure. If you just let it pile up, it becomes a stinky mess. But if you spread it around, it's fertilizer and it helps a lot of good things grow. And that saying, while it may seem a little bit unsavory at first hearing, is actually kind of a beautiful way to think about money and all the gifts that God has entrusted to us. That really is beautiful. And there's a lot more to this story. And it's another great story by Christina Darnell. If you would like to read more, go to Ministry Watch's website. And Warren, I'd like you to hit a couple of quick stories before we go. What do you have? Well, uh, one, a story from our friends at the Nonprofit Times. Utah and Oregon have been named the most charitable states in the nation, according to a study by WalletHub that was published by the Nonprofit Times. Utah ranked as the most charitable. Minnesota ranked second overall. Other states scoring well included Maryland, Ohio, 
Oregon and New York. The Southwest didn't represent very well among the 50 states with two states that were the bottom two. Uh, Arizona was number 50 and New Mexico number 49. WalletHub compared the 50 states across two big dimensions. One was volunteerism and service, and the other was charitable giving. And you have another story from the Nonprofit Times. Yeah, the nonprofit group Tech for Good released its annual study 2020 Global Trends in Giving report this past month. And among the findings, 51% of donors participate in at least one sustaining giving program, which means that they do an automated monthly or maybe quarterly uh, giving plan. Another important finding is that direct mail is no longer the preferred method of giving, as it has been for many decades. Uh, More than 55% prefer giving online, uh, often via debit or credit card, but 12% require a bank or wire transfers. About 10% contribute via PayPal. Uh, These percentages, when you take them all together, add up to more than 75% of all giving. The rest is divided between uh, digital wallets, text to give software, and mobile money. By the way, this was a in-depth article with a lot of data. So if you're a ministry leader, I recommend that you check it out. You can find the article at ministrywatch.com. Now, Warren, before we go, can you tell us who you have on the ministry spotlight this week? Yeah, our new ministry spotlight column written by uh, Rod Pitzer does a deep dive into the financials of a single ministry. Uh, This week, we feature Live Action, the pro-life ministry led by Lila Rose. If you want to know more about that ministry, you can also go to ministrywatch.com and you'll find that ministry right on the front page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Emily Miller, Adele Banks, Christina Darnell, Sarah Rockin, Julia Duin, and Yonat Shimron. Thank you to our friends at the Nonprofit Times and Religion Unplugged for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith, coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 